Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 105 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's morning on the first Monday of 2019. It's January 7th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. And in the immortal words of Billy Ray Valentine, Merry New Year! Merry New Year indeed. Look, looking good, Steve. Feeling good, Bobby. <laughs> All right, we're back. It's been a little while. Um, we didn't even plan that. No, that was pretty good. Yeah, was well I'm done. sure that I'm sure that's obvious. <laughs> All right, um, do you have a nice break? I, you know, I had I had I, I had a nice break. I had a a very daycare free break. Um, not not that we were counting, but twelve straight days of of twenty four seven parenting is a little. Um, how do I say tiring? It is. It it it's a job. But but you know what you know what brightened up my my break though. Um, Late yesterday afternoon, uh, a friend, some two friends of mine who had just gotten back from New York, brought me Essa bagels. Who, well, what wonderful person would have gone to the trouble of getting Essa bagels and bringing them all the way across the country? I don't you? know, but man, you know, my morning started right today with a with a toasted Essa bagel with some cream. Now, mind you, I had to toast it because it had traveled across the country. Yeah, they, so we we kept a few of them for ourselves, <laughs> and uh, uh, they held up pretty well. Uh, there's just. There, that's a high quality bagel. Well, listen, I mean, a, a four day old toasted Essa bagel is still better than anything you can get in Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But uh, th- uh, thank you. Yeah, you are welcome. <laughs> that was a fun trip. We uh, took our oldest daughter to to NYC for uh, a big sort of belated birthday extravaganza, and it was it was wonderful. Um, we got a lot to talk about. The world has we been do? busy while we were. It's away. been like this is. I think this is like the longest period we've gone without recording since we started this podcast. Yeah, that's right. And you know what's funny? Um, during the but time we were happened. gone, the the president completely committed to pulling us out of Syria, and yeah. then and then is already walking it back. But I think we're going to have a lot to talk about just in case he meant what he said. Well, Bolton's walking it back. I'm not sure the. President. Yeah, we'll walking it back. That, one wonders. Um, you know? Let's see. Uh, the the Secretary of Defense resigned, um, yep. and then had his resignation date moved up rather uh, uh, dramatically. Yes, he did. Um, what we've else? Had, we've had some military commission developments because how could we not? <laughs> um, and indeed, uh, uh, we're we're getting ready. Actually, next week's episode, we're going to have a very special guest. Um, we won't kill the surprise. We'll just say it's. Military commission related. Yeah, we're definitely going to go deep uh, next week on the Mill Council. We'll have a little bit on it today. We'll even manage to drag Dovey Mattis, not totally relevant. We'll manage to drag it back in because there are, it's not in U.S. custody, but there is at least one, maybe two. Uh, Islamic State U.S. citizen uh, detainees. Bobby, out stop there. trying to make Doe versus Mattis happen. <laughs> Dovey Mattis is so fetch. Um, to, to jump ahead, well, after the National Security Division and litigation roundups, we'll have some frivolity about Mean Girls. Mean Girls, obviously. We'll get plastic because uh, uh, a it's it's a it's a movie. You've only seen the movie, not the musical, right? I've only seen the movie, not the musical. All right, and I just am fresh off of seeing the musical in ah. New York last week, so we'll we'll compare notes. I mean, I I think Mean Girls is is a is a fantastically brilliant movie. I I I have. My problem with Mean Girls is it has nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with the, the decline and fall of Lindsay Lohan. But that's a separate conversation. Oh, interesting. All right. I can't wait um, to get to that. And, and by the way, so, somewhere along the way, there are some other litigation updates we're going to sneak in here, including actually I think a pretty big decision last Friday from the D.C. Circuit uh, with regard to the uh, not quite full ban, but the, the large-scale ban on service by transgender individuals in the military. And naturally, we will also talk about the president's claim that if, uh, if the Congress won't fund his wall, I'll build it myself. He'll build it. He'll build it himself. He'll, he'll find yet another possible funding source Have this you, time. The, did you see? Did you see his his graphics about the wall is coming? 
uh, I did the Game of Thrones. Graphic. So he's totally. First of all, he's violating well, trademark law. But separate from that, <laughs> um, has he not? Uh, spoiler alert! Has he not watched the end the sh- of season seven? Yeah, yeah. We okay. Really serious, temporary, brief spoiler alert. You can just like skip ahead. 15 seconds. Although if you haven't, if you well, are a Game no, of Thrones no, person can't. and you haven't gotten to the end of season seven, what are you doing with your life? That's true. That's true. Well, let's just, let's just say that you don't want to invoke the wall in Game of Thrones as your idea of an impregnable wall. Boom. All right. Said. Done. Right. Okay. So we got a lot to but, talk by about. By the way, you know what is coming? The wall may not be coming. Winter may not be. You know what is coming? Season, uh, season eight is season coming. Season eight is coming. And I can't wait. The frivolity will improve. Because uh, you and I will both be watching the same show We'll the finally same time. be watching the same show at the same time. You know what else is coming? The, <coughs> sp- the spring semester. Oh, yeah. Uh, are, you know, I was about to oh, ask yeah. you if you've, you're done grading, but as I finally recalled, you didn't teach last fall. No, but are you I, ready? I, I will say I'm proud to say I have finished one of my two syllabi for the upcoming semester. Good, good, because um, you know the associate dean does require you to... to the university requires me to turn in my syllabi. <laughs> but I will say, federal court, hey, federal court students, if you're listening to this podcast, your syllabus is ready. And later today, you'll be getting an email from me with the syllabus and the first reading assignment. All right, so you're going to teach fed courts. Yep. And then your other course? National Security, colon, detention, treatment, and trial. Nice. So that's kind of the bread and butter, counterterrorism, and other um, other aspects Military-ish. where you have custody or exercising dominion over somebody in the national security setting. Indeed. And I'll be teaching national security, colon, I'm not sure what it actually says, but the gist of it. <laughs> <laughs> national security, colon, Some stuff. Sense. No, intelligence, law of the intelligence community. So it's all the surveillance, like a ton of NSA stuff and FBI stuff, and then also some covert action stuff. And that's pretty much what it is. And actually, I probably will be encouraging at least my national security students, if not my federal court students, to listen to our podcast. Oh, absolutely. I, I will do the same. Because, so, uh, I mean, hey, if, what, what's a captive audience? But, you know. Well, uh, I think we should have a recurring feature in the spring once the courses get underway of mentioning what is it we've been talking about in class. Yep. Totally. Okay. All right. Uh, so, so where do you want to start? Yeah, let's start. The run of show is uh, serious stuff, then border wall stuff, then litigation-related stuff. We'll sprinkle in some Mattis here and there. Mattis will definitely come up in the Syria context, I think. Uh, we'll do a National Security Division roundup with some fascinating uh, case developments involving uh, Chinese commercial espionage, Hal Martin and shadow brokers, and, uh, and of course, the inevitable Islamic State material support cases. Mm. And then we'll get to frivolity with Mean Girls. What, what a show. I really want to lose three pounds. <laughs> you can read Swedish? I have a, a creatine bar here for you. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, let's talk about Syria. The, the problem with Mean Girls is all of the best lines are things I really don't want to repeat on this podcast. Yeah, this year, I mean, look, we got to be careful how we talk about it here. If it's you're a, from Africa, it's a family show. Dot dot dot. Yeah, no, there's 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 so much about it that's well, indeed, indeed. we'll get to that. That's what the frivolity segment is for. The serious segment is first and foremost we're talking about war powers. True. Um, there's lots more to talk about, but we've got some war powers developments. But first, let's let's set the stage for the uh, the one or two percent of you who may uh, not have been closely following this. Uh, first, the president makes huge news by precipitously announcing that uh, we're pulling out. We are getting out of Syria. Bye, Felicia. And <laughs> we are uh, going to do this in a way that is going to be quick. I think the State Department employees, uh, such as there were, were told to get out within 24 hours. Yep. And then the 2,000 ground forces were told, you know, in 30 days. Yeah, something, something very rapid. Now, it's important to note, this is being walked back to some extent as we speak. The president's been vague, both doubling down on his commitment to withdrawing, but also now finally saying, instead of saying we're Islamic gonna, we, State's defeated. Yeah, well, he's, he's saying 
when the Islamic State is is gone. So this is what so somebody has made him face the fact that the Islamic State is not actually gone like he originally maybe this claimed. Is, maybe it's his acting chief of staff. By the way, I don't understand how he could be an acting chief of staff, but that's another thing. Um, yeah. So the president's initial claim was we're pulling out because we beat because we defeated ISIS. Right. Exactly. And then like. Not 24 hours later, he says, we're pulling out because we're going to leave ISIS to be handled by Turkey and Russia and Syria. Yeah. Well, so in fairness on that, I mean, you could say, look, what he's saying is we're pulling out because the ground, the physical caliphate, the, the ground dominion has been reduced to such a nub that we don't need to be the ones doing the job anymore. And if it were the case that you could count on someone else to reliably do it, that wouldn't be crazy. Um, Can we, Bobby? Can we what? Rely on somebody else to reliably do it? Well, we're going to talk about Turkey here in a minute. Mm. And I think we can rely on them to do something, but it's not necessarily to go after the Islamic State. Wait, you don't think Turkey's necessarily going to be... We can't count on Turkey to act in our national best interests? Oh, gosh. Can we count on anyone to ask, act in our national best These interests? Days? But it doesn't, it doesn't follow that we need to be on the ground in Syria uh, ad infinitum. No. But anyways, so Trump's walked it back a little bit. A little. Um, more interestingly, his national security advisor has has had very, uh, very clear and different things to say about it, including that we're not pulling out until the Turks commit. And this is the key issue, really. Um, the, the Turks commit to not attacking the YPG. The, the YPG, these are the Kurdish forces that have been the key ground element uh, on behalf of U.S. interests as well as their own interests in going after the Islamic State and having success in defeating the Islamic State on the ground. Um, they are hated by the Turkish administration, which views them as part and parcel of the PKK. In other words, uh, Erdogan and, and Ankara view the YPG as a terrorist organization. They've attacked them twice in Syria before over the past couple of years. And if we were to really precipitously withdraw, as the president says he wants to, it's pretty clear that Turkey will mount a military intervention to try to destroy YPG's ability to hold territory as they do in Northeast <coughs> Syria. Um, and this is where things got pretty tangled up for the administration pretty quickly because there was a lot of recognition that we were effectively abandoning allies whom we've been funding, supporting, and using as our ground proxy force uh, for years now, and that the Islamic State was not actually fully defeated. And that's why this is all such a disaster. Bolton is in route at this moment to Turkey, ostensibly to try to negotiate an agreement where the Turks aren't going to go after uh, the YPG. I think it's very clear that eventually they will. When we're yes. gone, eventually they of will. Course. They may well promise not to do so, and they may well actually act on that promise. For like six months. Yeah, for some period of time until we're out. But once we're out, we're out. That, so here's the thing. So there was a lot of pushback on Twitter and the media, et cetera, to people like me um, objecting to, to the sort of seeming lack of preparation, planning, consultation, interagency process, diplomatic negotiation, just like the knee jerk of this. Yeah, it's yeah. like, wait, I thought you were the same people who were against all of this stuff, right? And it's like, doesn't mean you do it stupid. That's my, <laughs> thank you. It doesn't mean you do it stupid. That that really <laughs> ought to be the title of this episode, but you already have a title for this episode. Well, no, we've, we've kind of been sticking with the, this podcast is. Yeah, but I don't know. It doesn't mean you do it stupid. It's all right, write good. that one down. Write that one down. down. I'll, um, I'll mention one other qualification on on the president for the win thank you um 
it's also been signaled pretty strongly that we're, this withdrawal order doesn't necessarily extend to our base, our garrison at uh, Al-Tanif, which is near Jordan. The reason why we might stay there is because this is right on the direct route from right. Tehran right. to Damascus. This is there. It's been a, a comfortable Jordan a convenient staging area for all the uh, training and supportive forces we've been doing. But going forward, the idea is this is uh, a place from which to exercise leverage by presence on the Iranians. And cool. that raises the question, which is front and center in both Bolton's statements and the president's statements about what the future forward-looking U.S. interest in Syria is uh, to, to keep Iran from exercising too much dominion in Syria. So there's that, and there's it also raises the question to me of if we've pulled out all of our other forces and the only forces left are is the Al Tanif outpost, what's the legal authority, right? Because right, well, no, right. that's that, and so this this is where we finally get some really good legal questions. Let's start with the easy one. Um, as much as much as it might be stupid to do it in this way, uh, may or may not be dis- may or may not be bad policy to withdraw uh, in general. But if you did it the right way, but. Uh, I don't think there's any legal doubt about the president's authority no. to issue that order. No, 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 no. I mean, if, if the commander-in-chief clause means anything, right, it means the power to bring our troops home. So in, in the AUMFs, which is which we're going to get to that, the AUMFs ah. ostensibly have been the legal foundation for being there, uh, certainly for the Obama administration, once it got past its early awkward flirtation with Article 2 as the basis. <laughs> um, it, like it eventually put it on our AUMFs, and you know, the Trump administration until now hasn't had to really talk about what its legal foundation is, but we've all continued on the assumption the AMFs are the are the driver. They, you know, they did to delegate to the president the discretion to decide what force is necessary, et cetera. So it's it's clear if, if the president says, hey, it's time to come home, that's not a legal question. It's a policy and a process question. The limit does not exist. <laughs> what is that from? Mean Girls. Is it? Yeah, the movie. Oh, oh that's the uh, from the competition. The tiebreaker. The, the athletics. The limit does not the exist. The mathletics. You're right. God, the that's mathletes. a key moment. The mathletes. Well, they, they, they were engaged in mathletics at that time. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so the order withdraw, not a problem. What's much more interesting is the suggestion that we'll stay to counterbalance the Iranians. I think that presents a real, in, in otherwise to stay under anything other than we're still fighting the Islamic State. So it's, it's pretty clear at this point, they're going to walk back some of that. We're no longer fighting the Islamic State language. But let's, let's play with the legal issue here, Steve. If, if the president says we're going to maintain a presence in Syria without authorization from the Syrian government, which remains, you yeah. know, for a better or much worse, the sovereign government of, of Syria, uh, they, they don't give us permission to be there. We have an armed force uh, holding Hanging force out. combat ready, not necessarily, though, engaging in any combat operations. No. That's the thing. So Almost like a deterrent. John Bolton's, uh, his quote, let's see if I have it here. Um, I'm a strong believer in Article 2, and I think that, that, <laughs> that what that means is the president has full authority to protect American and allied interests anywhere around the world. Okay, so uh, unpack that a bit. Is that a claim merely of what we sometimes call the deployment power under Article 2? 
because the president clearly has authority as sort of a default peacetime matter to shift U.S. forces to various locations around the world. But usually it's with some permission from the host country. Right. So so I think some people will reach... Do I pass? You do. Okay. That's exactly where I was going with hey. it. That some people will say, look, the president's got uh, authority to put people in bases here. You know, just talk about putting people in base, bases in Poland. Let's have the Navy visit there. That's all great. I actually am very much a believer that the deployment power is a robust power, but... I've, I don't see any precedent for saying that deployment power gets you a non-consensual, combat-ready, territory-holding, sustained, overt military encampment in foreign territory. For that, you need to switch from deployment power to actual war power. Correct. And okay. that's where we have to talk about that little pesky institution known as the United States Congress. Hmm. Who are they again? Uh, we're about to find out. We got a new one. This one's going to be interesting. Oh, yes. <laughs> a little more, a little more uh, exciting than uh, in recent years. Already, I mean, I feel like there's been more oversight. Oh, I know. In four just days just like the swearing-in day was, you know, you got uh, you got uh, all Chris, kinds of Kristen Cinema getting sworn in on a Constitution, and the ends like, how you know she didn't get sworn on a Bible? It's like okay. Well, there's 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 going to be much more to come in terms of the excitement from Congress, but they're the, dancing, Bobby. The, the, <laughs> we, it's like Footloose, right? No, no dancing in Congress. Yes, yes. All right. Um, let's hear it for... Uh, AMFs? AMFs. And let's so, hear it for uh, what happens next in terms of the war powers debate. Were we to get to the place where we pull out, the president says this is no longer an Islamic State armed conflict mission. We're there holding that territory, that base at yeah, least, yeah. to counterbalance the Iranians. So I think the problem is, is that in some respects, now we're talking about something that is qualitatively different from, say, the one-off uses of force that we've talked about over and over on this podcast, where, like, you've got airstrikes based on a theory of collective self-defense, or you've got, you know, the, what, the the Mount Shinjar operation. Um, okay. This would be different. This would be a long-term strategic outpost, right? Boots For, on the ground. Boots and boots on the ground. I, I just don't know how you do that without, you know, going, getting some more express ground. I mean, so first of all, the, the, the 2001 AMF won't work. Right, because Iran is not a nation, person, or organization who planned the attacks of September 11th or harbored those who did. Right. There's no question 2001 AMF would not right. apply. And the 2002 Iraq AUMF, insofar as it's relevant at all, presumably it's relevant about it's to protecting Iraq. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a map right now, and I see Al Tanif, right, and I see Jordan, and I see Iran. I don't see Iraq. Yeah, you'd have to cook up some proofs too much theory about the larger destabilization of the region based on Iranian growing power, et cetera, somehow reflecting back badly on Iraq. Actually, that um, is Iraq. Okay, yeah, I just yeah. see Iraq. Yeah, okay. No, it, no it's nearby. You'd have <laughs> but to it's not in Iraq. No, exactly. And, and of course, you, they could, and maybe they will try to make such arguments, but that just tends to support those who would say that the 2002 AUMF is dangerously broad if it's broad enough well, to encompass is, that. And, and the substantive goal of the 2002 Iraq AUMF is the stability of the Iraqi government, right? It's not clear to me how um, Iran's sort of um, involvement in the Syrian domestic conflict, yeah. right? W would unsettle Iraq. Iraqi politics yeah. until and then well, crosses mean, the border. It, there, there's something to it. I mean, there's no question there's a vast amount of Iranian intervention in Iraqi affairs. But what's not clear is what the connection, the nexus between that very direct and real and substantial ongoing on the ground. Uh, involvement in Iraq yep. would be with Al-Tanif in Syria. Yep. Um, so we, we are generally know. in agreement on this, I think. No, I think so. No, but, it, but on the other – so let's – see what might be the best thing one could say for it. And that would be that, hey, they're not going to use force, right? They're just, they're going to hold territory. But this is actually a much lesser intervention right. than dropping bombs from the air. And so, 
if one were clever enough, and you know, I don't know if they're ever going to try to make these arguments publicly, but if one wanted to make the argument, I think you'd say, look, on one hand, this Al-Tanif scenario sounds worse than Libya and early Iraq and Syria in terms of an Article II assertion of unilateral executive authority to use the armed forces. It sounds worse because it's boots on the ground and it's sustained and it's holding territory. On the other hand, it's actually far, far more removed from war, we might argue, because we're not killing anyone, or at least depending on what they get, what goes on there. And that there's something to that argument. So I agree with that. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that for the better part of 25, 20 years, right, since Kosovo, 23 years, 22 years, 20 Whatever. plus years, yes. um, right, the whole theory on which now four successive presidents have based the ability to conduct these kinds of unilateral airstrikes without going to Congress is that there's something categorically and constitutionally different between one-off uses of kinetic force and long-term deployments, Bobby, wholly apart from whether every moment of the deployment involves kinetic force against an enemy power. But if, so it seems like so yeah, it seems yeah. like if that's the line we've drawn for twenty years to all of a sudden say no 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 deployments of ground troops for a long period of time are also okay so long as our immediate goal is not to use those ground troops for hostilities we're changing the narrative again. I completely agree, and I think we're we're both in complete agreement that this is exactly the the boots on the ground factor is exactly the variable that was touted most heavily by both presidents of both parties in the various OLC opinions and other statements that have tried to explain how airstrikes somehow didn't count as war for constitutional purposes. And this ought to tip it into that category that was treated as actually then implicating the offensive defensive distinctions that go with the war powers debate, but. If it were the case that they have no combat role and that they're just sitting there behind their barriers holding territory, uh, it's it's much tougher. It's not the same as law. if they were going on patrol and they're engaging in combat. As a matter of domestic law. Now, of course, there's yeah, still yeah. that well, pesky yeah. little matter of the UN Charter. All right. So if we said all we want to say about the domestic law aspects, we should say something about war powers resolution, actually, because I think that gets really interesting. If you imagine that, let's say that my my picture of a plausible or semi-plausible space for argument or under Article 2 is is at least good enough to get the conversation going, um, it would not follow that this isn't deployment of armed forces into situations where hostilities were imminent. Now, the president might assert they're not imminent, right. but it would seem to me like a textbook case where um, if Section the local, you're not supposed right. to be there. The yep. Syrian government doesn't want you there. They have the Russians behind them, and now the Iranians are right there. Your and whole, the only reason why you're there is to prevent is this to, exact kind of military yeah, cooperation. It seems to me this clearly gets the clock going yep. under the War Powers Resolution calendar in a way that if, if you're thinking like, wait, why isn't it already going? Because we're invoking the AUMFs. And we already have congressional authorization under that model. If you take that model out, which we have done by stipulation here, right. then you have a. The only question is, have you introduced forces into a situation where hostilities are imminent or actually ongoing? I would argue that this looks a lot like hostilities would yes. be imminent, and therefore the clock would start going. And so even if days. even if you didn't think, even if you thought the president had sort of a starter kit power to put <laughs> the put under Article Two, put the forces in there, you've now got a statutory uh, clock ticking on you. And we'd reach the 60-day mark, and I wonder what would then happen. 
So I think you hear a lot of noise in the house, and I think how much noise you hear in the set. I mean, I think as it's going to be a broken record for the next two years, the house will go apoplectic, the house will pass something, and the Senate will be like, interesting. Yeah. Sorry, we're busy yeah. doing something else. And would you agree that the courts aren't going to get involved? No. Yeah. No, 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 no. All right, no, no. so you mentioned international law, the UN Charter Is there a issue. lot to say about the UN Charter? No. So we've been present in Syria. It, our presence fighting the Islamic State in Iraq was by uh, consent of the Iraqi government. Um, collective self-defense, all this other stuff, but consent's the main thing. Um, but consent obviously is not present for Syria. We've been there under some kind of unwilling, unable theory about the extended uh, collective self-defense of Iraq, uh, where we have to get involved in Syria because Syria's own government is not capable of fully suppressing the right. Islamic State on its own. It's an argument I actually buy. Yeah. Um, but if we say that's no longer why we're there, instead we're there to counterbalance the Iranians, I don't see any argument Wait, that we've got. Were there to counterbalance the Iranians who might actually have Syrian consent, right? And so, oh, who, yeah, who absolutely would have. Syrian and so, consent. and so now it is a direct affront to the UN Charter as opposed to just a a gap, right? right? Which is not to say this would be self enforcing or anything, but no. I think we'd be standing naked with the violation of the UN Charter at that point. Which you know, clearly, this administration, the president, and the national security advisor won't care a whit about. But you know, no, but it it matters. <laughs> but it's our job to care about it, this sort of stuff. All right, next up, next messy bucket. So something really. Weird Happened. Oh, wait, before we go to the wall, are you going to the wall? No, I'm going to DTDs. Good, okay. Um, Mark Thiessen wrote an op-ed with which I generally agreed. <laughs> I really this wasn't is, ready for that. This is really stunning. I go. know. I mean, the Guantanamo... So Mark, Mark Thiessen wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post basically saying um, the, the one of the biggest problems with Trump's chaotic plan is what to do with all of the SDF detainees. Now, Mark says, that's easy. Ship them to Guantanamo. To which I say, you've got to be fracking kidding me. But the but the, the the sort of larger point that the detainee piece of this is actually a very relevant, serious part of the conversation is something I think was was absolutely right and needed to be said. Spot on. This is something anyone who's listened to the show a long time and or who's followed my blogging for a long Indeed. time knows. I do tend to obsess over these proxy force detainee detention situations where eventually we leave and these proxy forces don't have permanent jails and don't have permanent control of their territory. And they don't have Guantanamos. And they will release these detainees if they themselves are undergoing strategic defeat, which is a real risk here of our precipitous withdrawal. So yes, there are all these Islamic State fighters, including loads of European citizens. And as we, we learned a couple of days ago, uh, apparently at least a couple of Americans citizens. Dun, dun, dun. One for sure, Warren Christopher Clark. Definitely, it's, it's been known for a long time, this guy's over there fighting for the Islamic State. And another guy who may or may not be American, he might actually be from Trinidad. Anyways. Is there a possibility of a Doe versus Mattis redux? So there it is! Doe v. Mattis is back! But it's not really. Um, inle- <laughs> unless unless you, you he gets to get turned over... If he gets turned over to U.S. forces, then we've got a new... Clark. Do, yes, if Warren Clark and maybe the other guy get turned over to the U.S., I think it's safe to say that the joys of the Dovey Maddox experience will lead DOD and DOJ to say, no, we're good, y'all hold him. Yes, we don't want and, him. And if and when you turn him over to us, it's because he's coming to the United States for his material support prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, not a day sooner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, it does look to me like there's... Based on the fact that there's a lot of information in the public record about this guy's activities for the Islamic State, this much more so even than the Dovey Mattis scenario pretty clearly could be a, do, uh, a material support prosecution. Mm-hmm. So I imagine we will eventually take that guy and we will bring him back and yep. prosecute him. Yep. Maybe the other guy as well. But um, but, but, but those but, other detainees but is, is a larger problem that I think you know the president wasn't thinking about at all when he when he oh, yeah. did his thing. No. 
And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think the tail should wag the dog. I mean, the existence of detainees is not a reason. You know, right. the, that's not, that is not a You don't stay there so that you can keep helping exactly. detainees. But you also don't leave without a plan. Exactly. Now, you, you say uh, that Marx was saying like, hey, it's easy, fix this, just bring it to Gitmo. I feel like he was, he was more nuanced than that. I think what he was saying was most of these detainees are European citizens and other third country citizens, and they won't take them back. Why? Because it, it's dangerous for them, et cetera. They don't want to. This is a well-familiar problem. It's been going on for a couple of years now. We've been negotiating with these countries, trying to get them to take their citizens back. They don't want to. I think what Mark is saying is, Let's let's put it to a fine point and say you take them back or they're going to Guantanamo, hoping that that will force their hand. I, I actually think that's pretty interesting to suggest it that way. If you actually stipulated that they're going to walk and they're actually going to get free um, or we could try that very dangerous gamble, you take your citizens back or they're coming to Gitmo, that would be an option I think that needs to be looked at. Uh, but there is a further option, which is well, what if they get turned over to the to the Syrian government? Syrian government has an interest in detaining yep. these people as yep. well. And it's their soil. Now, you could say, well, from a human rights perspective, that's a disaster. Well, the awkwardness of that argument is, you're right, maybe they should go to Gitmo because that would be better for them from a human rights perspective. They would certainly be uh, a much better, uh, you know, I, I can imagine, I can almost hear through the, the microphones, people people shouting at the, uh, at the podcast saying, no, prosecute them. Well, I, I don't think there's any prospect whatsoever the United States is going to bring in hundreds and hundreds of foreign Islamic no, no, State no, fighters no, for prosecution here. No, no, but can I, can I be the, the crazy person who says, if this is a serious problem, go to Congress and get a more specific statute, right? I mean, you know, the—, the I, I, we're You getting, mean like an AMF problem? Like so the, I, th- I, I mean, an AMF problem, but also a detention problem. I mean, right, so, so there's no—the the, the ban on transferring Guantanamo detainees to further detention in the United States only applies to Guantanamo detainees. Um, there's no reason why, even if we agreed as a matter of policy, that the U.S., if we get that far, ought to take some of these detainees into military. All right, it doesn't have custody. to be Gitmo. It doesn't have to be Gitmo. I mean, that was my point to Mark, right, was, oh, you know, saying. you are saying, you know, Gitmo need not be the sine qua non of U.S. military detention possibilities. You know, why not? If you really think military detention is appropriate, why not for once do it the right way? Just do it in Fort Leavenworth or yeah. wherever. Pick and, a break and, and go to Congress and just say, we just want, you know, we want X amount of money, right, to sort of, you know. Well, if we're only talking about a few people, you wouldn't need to go to Congress for Also funding. true. Yeah. Right. But my point is just like, I, I, I think it's a false equivalent. False equivalent. I think it is a, is a, is a false dilemma. Um, or a false choice to say, you know, if we're going to take them into custody, we have to send them to Gitmo. It's so we've true. added, so we've added two additional options: send them to Damascus, which is has got some yeah. downsides, yeah. but but some upsides. Or send them to Kansas. Or send them to Kansas. <laughs> Dem- <laughs> Damascus or Kansas? Question mark. All right. Um, uh, speaking of things that need to be paid for, if you want the military to do that. Well, wait first. Well, wait first. We while all this was going oh, on. Oh yeah. Wait. This whole thing lost, made somebody pretty mad. We lost. We lost. We lost Mad Dog. Uh, so Jim Mattis has uh, left the building, and and he dropped the mic on what was meant to be a slow walk off the stage. So, so this is so this is. I mean, listen. If you want to understand the Trump administration in a nutshell, Mattis's departure is oh, like Exhibit yeah. A because Mattis. So Trump jumps the gun by tweeting that Mattis is leaving, right? Um, because right? Mattis is resigned. Because Mattis had by that point uh, resigned. He just had not told anyone. Mattis had resigned apparently because he had failed to convince President Trump to not go public about Syria, right? I mean, that's the media report. Um, Mattis then later that night releases a, I think, you know, damning 
resignation letter. No, it's a, it's a historic document. It's a wonderful document uh, talking about the importance of uh, standing by allies, working with allies, being respectful of allies, and in general, articulating the themes of traditional American foreign policy and, and common sense policy that we associate Jim Mattis with defending. And, yeah. and, and uh, well, I think. Yeah. And and Trump uh, obviously did not read it closely or at all at first. At first. Right. So what do you think happens? Do you think that he's watching Fox and gradually? Absolutely. There's a groundswell of commentary saying like, man, uh, Matt has really guy. zinged Trump. Yeah. He, really, he really laid the wood to him in, in a really impressive document. And, and, finally, so, right. and so pretty quickly it goes from he'll stay on until February to he's out. Right. Bye. And, and, and along in some in some sort of childish remarks about denigrating Mattis in, in sort of a soft but but clearly intended to be insulting way because um, he can't help it. He cannot help it. I mean, heaven forbid anyone actually, you know, do anything to suggest that Trump did anything wrong. Um, so instead, Trump names uh, the deputy secretary of defense, Patrick Shanahan, mm-hmm. um, to be the acting secretary of defense immediately. Yeah. Now, some people panicked about this. They're like, oh, guy's got a background in, in industry. Um, so Shanahan, I think, by all accounts, is, is a well-respected figure yeah, yeah. in the Pentagon. He's been on the job for a while. This is, not, the this place. is not Whitaker, right? This is the, the contrast between naming Matthew Whitaker to be the acting attorney general naming no, no. Patrick Shanahan. I think Shanahan is very plausible for this position. In fact, I'm, I'm rather comforted uh, that he's in that position. I'll just say two things. The first is, um, as a general matter, it is actually exceedingly rare to have an acting secretary of defense. It's actually only happened once since 1985. Um, and I think that's a reflection that presidents across parties have deemed that position too important to allow it to be vacant for more than a very short period right. of time. I mean, President Obama famously right asked Bob Gates to stay on um, to throughout his transition and through right. his early tenure. And Mattis tried to set it up so yep. that he could stay in place as the real Senate confirmed right. Secretary of Defense early February, until someone was in place. Early to February him. would give the Senate Armed Services right. Committee all the time yeah. it would need to conduct a confirmation hearing. So now there's in a, in a traditional political environment, the absence of Senate confirmation would be deemed sort of a, a, a blow to your prestige and ability to do things that depends on prestige as yeah. Secretary. Uh, in the current environment, I'm not sure it matters as much. No, but I mean, so it matters, I think. In, so it, it matters... If this were an administration that cared a whit about interagency process, um, it might matter because an acting secretary can't, you know, can't go head to head with a confirmed secretary. Of course, when they're all acting, well, uh, there is that. <laughs> um, so the other thing I was going to say was just really quickly: there is one sort of long-term potential legal question. I just want to flag because mm. this is in theory a podcast about law. Um, so unlike Whitaker, there actually is no question about the immediate legality of Shanahan stepping in, both as a matter of the DOD uh, uh, succession statute itself, I think that's 10 U.S.C. 132B, and the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, because he was already the deputy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And because he was Senate confirmed to that position, yep. even those who are constitutionally objecting to Whitaker are generally okay with Shanahan. There's a question that has not been answered yet in any of these contexts about whether the Constitution imposes a time limit on how long you can serve as an acting cabinet secretary. Um, There are some who think the answer is no. Um, Justice Thomas, at least in his concurring opinion in the Southwest General case 2017, said yes. Um, And there are some who think it's like, you know, six months-ish. Did Thomas articulate any sort of rule? No, just that three years was too long. Right, so this becomes a, a principle and a standard, right? The, and the, Correct. The, the, the general principle is it can't be indefinite. And I think that's right. I think, so for example, imagine that the president tried to have a 
every single cabinet right. secretary simply be enacted. So, that's, so, so, so this is in perpetuity. That, right. At a certain point, there's got to be a limit. But, so, but so there's how a can lot, you draw the line? Well, that's the question. And so, this, presumably, this won't matter unless we get to June, and there's still no nominee to be defense secretary. Um, but so this leads to the last point I want to make, which is there's a lot of chatter about how many acting senior officials there are, and how unusual that is, and how problematic it is. Um, and some folks, I think, have gotten a little carried away in saying we should never have any acting officials. Um, no, that's it's, ridiculous. To me, Bobby, it's the confluence of four different things, okay? It's how many of them there are. That's factor one, right? It's in ha- in such senior positions. I mean, these are, mm-hmm. you know, we're not talking about, like, um, undersecretary right. for Near Eastern Affairs. We're talking about the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, like some of the most important government agencies. Um, three, um, just exactly... Um, Sorry, one, how many, two, how long they've been there. Um, three, oh, sorry, three is how long they've been there, right? The possibility yeah. they're going to be there for a long time. And then four is all of this is happening against the backdrop of a Republican majority in the Senate that has not been at all shy about confirming the president's, right? There's right. no sort of structural tension between the president and the Senate that might explain why he's not more rapidly naming people to succeed them. So, right, one possibility, they're not finding people who want these jobs. No, there's there's definitely something to the pool they're willing right. to look at and the pool of people re- plausibly qualified to do these things is historically small. There's no doubt about that. But the president said over the weekend, he said, I'm in no hurry. I have acting and my actings are doing really great. I sort of like acting. It gives me more flexibility. Yeah. He uh, one of the one of the one of the charms of our current moment politically is that uh, He says the, the quiet part out loud. He says the quiet part out loud all, all the, the time. time. Nice. Um, and he said it right there, and that's exactly the reason why if you're looking for the normative basis for thinking there should be a limit on this. It's just that. You know, one might then say, and I'm sure John Bolton in particular would say, the executive power is entirely vested in the president of the United States. And the idea of the president having more direct control, which is the more sort of intellectual way of describing this idea, I like having acting. Yeah. I like being able to actually make people do what I want them to do. But he could do that anyway. Was like This is this what I don't understand, right? Yeah. The only difference, the president has... Well, the, the difference ex- is this way he didn't have to run the gauntlet of the Senate. No, but that's the thing, right? The only difference, once you have a, conf- a confirmed secretary, the only difference between a confirmed secretary and an acting secretary is whether they were confirmed. Right. Because once they're both there, they both serve at the pleasure of the president. The, a confirmed secretary is in no way yep. more insulated from presidential control than an acting secretary. It would be a real problem if it was. It's the Senate gauntlet that makes the difference. And but it's that, the Republican it, majority no, in the well, Senate. Here's, here's the legal point that's important. Yes, the executive power is entirely vested in the president. However, the same constitution that establishes that principle also very purposefully and, and with a sense that this is a really important piece of the overall puzzle yep. requires the Senate to confirm the senior officers. So uh, so this circumvention of that principle, it's not best understood as an expression of a unitary ex- executive uh, theory that could be defended in the Constitution. It's, it, it does run against the uh, the Senate's constitutionally required role. At least in the at least in the aggregate. I mean, that's in the my, aggregate. No, right, I mean like the general principle. No, no, but that's my yeah. point, right? My point is that no one of these episodes to me is deeply problematic, right. right? It's the it's the amalgamation of them against the backdrop of an unhostile Senate, right? So this this falls into the category, the growing category of things that are clearly constitutionally problematic, but you can't. You can't reduce that probably to a very clear bright line rule that applies to a particular case. Unless Cong- so I actually think – here I'm going to disagree with you. I think Congress could make this a whole lot 
I think Congress could draw the constitutional line a whole lot sh more sharply. You mean they can draw a statutory line to implement the constitutional principle? Exactly. Which is to say, I think Congress can go much further. So, for example, Congress could deny to acting secretaries the full panoply of duties and, and powers that a confirmed secretary has. That's, those are statutory. Yeah. Congress so it becomes the a office. game of chicken, right? Because yes. you, you and you run the risk here as the shutdown, the yep. ridiculous ongoing shutdown yep. illustrates the game of chicken. Sometimes people crash into each other. <laughs> And I'm a in the current environment. I'm a little reluctant to create a situation where actually the powers all become fallow, so and no one can exercise them. So speaking of the shutdown, day 17. Um, so just you know, if, if you haven't been keeping score at home, um, if this is still going on Sunday, it'll be the longest shutdown. So, so let me let me sort of give some context here. It'll be the longest shutdown since 1980. Um, you could argue it will be the longest shutdown of this type ever because 1980 is when the Justice Department um, reinterpreted the relevant federal statute, the Anti-Deficiency Act, yeah. to equate um, a lack of appropriations with you can't work. Um, so before 1980, there were actually lots of funding gaps in American history, but they didn't produce these consequences because the Justice Department took a much more charitable reading of what it meant for agencies to so operate without continuing. deficit spending was the norm. I would say or, the or norm. Just, or do you, working, working with the knowledge you will be paid, just keeping on going, even though technically right now your agency is not funded. But, but, but we know it's going to be. Eventually will be, so just right. keep going. And, and so in a pair of opinions by then Attorney General Civiletti um, in 80 and 81, the Jimmy Carter Justice Department actually reinterpreted the Anti-Deficiency Act to say— So wait, so this whole thing is—this is, be, is this recurring nightmare we're dealing yeah. with is because of that reinterpretation? And if we could just go back on that, then maybe the shutdown— uh, uh, game of chicken would lose its appeal? Yes, although I think, I mean, I will confess that I think Civiletti was right. Um, and I think Congress has spent 39, 38, 39 years legislating against the, you know, legislating in a manner that suggests it agrees yeah. with that. Conclusion. But could they reverse it by statute? Oh, absolutely. Going forward, next, next, time there's a, next time there's an impasse, people keep on working, you will get paid. Congress can amend the Anti-Deficiency Act yeah. whenever the hell it wants. I mean, yeah. that's not that's not the issue here. Yeah, this is like the filibuster, right? Like, there's there's reluctance to let go because you always imagine, well, what if I want to use this tool someday? Exactly. So anyway, so all Ugh. this is to say, so we've, we've shut down the government over the wall, yes. right? And then all of a sudden on Friday, the president announces that he's discovered ways to build the wall without even getting money for it from Congress <laughs> in the first place. Wait, I thought Mexico was supposed to pay for this. Oh, <laughs> Shoot. Shoot. Um, so the, before we get into whether he's right, Bobby, I just yeah. want to start from the proposition that if he's right, then he shut down the government for no reason. Yeah. No, well, for all the reasons, right? For attention and but, narrative control. Well, so this, That's but, all the reasons. But this is the thing. I, he doesn't want a deal. Like, this is this is not about a deal to Trump. This is about the – he wants the issue. He doesn't want the result. Oh, exactly. Look, you know my, you know my, my view of every single thing he does. It's about control of a narrative, control of attention, and control of the agenda of what we talk about, basically based on what's on TV. Okay, so so really, so so we've given you the law of the shutdown. Um, just a, a, a not so subtle reminder that the shutdown ends the moment that they all agree, or the moment that Congress has enough votes in both houses to override a veto. Right. Right. This is not. This doesn't go on for as long as President wants. This goes on for as long as there are enough Republicans in Congress to sustain a veto. Is do is there been any informed speculation about where that number is in the Senate? Because that's where it is most obvious. There's only one on record so far. Yeah. Uh, Senator Gardner, who, mm. by the way, is up for election in 2020 in a increasingly blue state of Colorado. 
So the president what says, a coincidence. The president says, quote, we can call a national emergency oh and build it very quickly, close quote. Um, national emergency, that's a phrase we've talked about on this show before Indeed. because of our favorite other related statute, IEPA. But this is the National Emergencies Act of 1976. No, but IEPA depends on the National Emergencies Act. So we've, we've explained in the show previously that in the 1970s, Congress created a structure where they regularized a uh, procedurally. Previous, yeah, procedurally regularized the process of the president declaring that such and such is a, quote, national emergency. And the reason that national emergencies is a legal term of art is that you've got these endless array of statutes that are sort of on the shelf or lying about like a loaded weapon waiting yeah. to be used. Ooh, look at you. And the formal declaration under the National Emergencies Act that such and such is now a national emergency, that's the trigger that turns on the lights. And the president can therefore walk in that now lit room, pick up the weapon and use it. IEPA is one of those weapons we use but it for there, sanctions but all there the time. Are dozens. I mean, there are yeah. dozens. Dozens of statues. 100 plus. Um, indeed. And and let me commend, Liza Goitian from the Brennan Center actually has a really good recent Atlantic article that walks through some of the, the breath here. And the whole idea is the National Emergencies Act is a procedural trigger that then calls on, you know, brings into the president's uh, quiver a whole series of substantive authorities he would not otherwise have. I'm sure we both do this in class. It's always fun to, if, if students haven't yet read the National Emergencies Act, they uh, which, by the way, you'll find in 50 U.S. Code, Chapter 34. Section um, 1621 at SEC. You would think it's got all kinds of, at least, general attempts to define what the standard is for a national emergency. Nope. No, 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 my friends. It, it, is, <laughs> it is purely in the president's discretion under this framework to say what he feels like is a national emergency. And then you've got these transparency type, reporting type rules. There is there is also, I will note, uh, an attempt by Congress to create what would now pretty clearly be an unconstitutional legislative. Uh, no, but they, but, they, but they amended it. So, oh, what, what so is the it original NEA said Congress could terminate a national emergency through a concurrent resolution. Ah. Which oh, oh right. They switched it to joint resolution. In 85 after Chada. So after the Supreme Court in INS versus Chada says, no, 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 legislative views are unconstitutional, Congress amends the National Emergencies Act. So now it's a joint resolution. Which, to unpack that, a concurrent resolution is one that's just passed by both houses. It doesn't have to be, it's not a statute. It doesn't have to be signed. It's not presented the to the president. And thus the idea was it was a legislative veto that Congress alone could vote to overturn the national emergency. Uh, Chada says that's unconstitutional. Saying it's a joint resolution is saying they got to pass a statute, meaning they've got to get the president, who, if they were willing to uh, revoke the emergency, would, would just do it on place. their own, or they have to override it by a two-thirds uh, by a two-thirds vote. So, in other words, national emergencies don't get overturned by Congress. And it's if you could do all this, yeah. they, they could do other things. They and could th just pass the appropriation. And this is Liza. And this is Liza's point that that we are seeing whatever your politics, right? You can look at any of the last four presidencies and find abuses of the National Emergencies Act. Right. Um, well, uh, so... Or how about this? How about this? Uses of the... Na how about this? Declarations of national emergencies that were not... That even if you agree with them ab initio, were not rescinded when the emergency had subsided. They rarely get... They get, they get renewed every year for the most part. In fact, if you follow the Federal Register's uh, presidential documents, one of the most common things is renewals of these emergencies. Yeah. Uh, and for the most part, that's fine. But it's, it's, it's clear what the potential for abuse is. And as... As everyone who studies this topic has long understood, this is one of those areas where norms and politics and shared and values— And political safeguards. And political safeguards and separation of powers and separation of parties. All these things were supposed to keep the guardrails in place. And we are in a time of a guy who loves— 
bursting past the guardrails. So, so I tweeted this on Friday and got a whole lot of blowback. I said, one of the enduring phenomena of the Trump era is going to be the list of statutes that give far too much power to the president, but that we didn't used to worry about because we assumed there would be political safeguards. Today's entrant, the National Emergency Act of 1976. No, that seems, that seems right. Well, I, so everyone said, who's we? And I'm like, dude, I mean we in like the collab. I don't mean like every person in the unit. People have too much yeah. time on their hands. Well, and and you allow Twitter to get to you too much. You gotta you gotta take a Twitter vacation, my friend. Yeah. Uh, Don't tell Karen that. Wait, what does she want you to? Oh my God, Karen wants me to like delete Twitter. Well, I think I think it'd be very interesting for you to take a month off, no social media. You'd you'd be like I'd lose taking up hobbies. You'd have all these. I would lose my mind. You would. You'd come back and your queue would be a bit long to, bit. to sort this. Like, you got some you, mentions. You have one million notifications. <laughs> All right. So in this case, um, the or, pot- or or even worse, it wouldn't be. Oh, ooh, ooh, oh, oh! But th- that would be this. This will like lead to Mean Girls discussion. We got to save that for frivolity. Yes. Okay. So wait. We right, do, so the reason do. the reason we're talking about the National Emergencies Act is that there the are there are two statutes that on their face are are certainly relevant for the conversation. I think I think we will agree that they don't actually cut the mustard um or all the mustard not enough of the mustard not enough of the mustard i, I hate mustard i have to admit all Me right too. So, yeah good there you go Fist who, bump. who likes mustard oh i'm sure some of our listeners like mustard we, we love our listeners who love mustard we just don't want to share that mustard with you all right 10 u.s code section 2808 quote construction authority in the event of a declaration of war or national emergency. Aha. All right, so 2808 is the main thing people are paying attention to. This is a, this is a DOD statutory authority that Go says... Go back to the 1980s. Yeah, it says if there's a national emergency that, quote, requires the use of the armed forces. Let me stop right there. Not just any national emergency, right. but a national emergency that, quote, requires the use of the armed forces, then Secretary of Defense can undertake construction projects that are not otherwise authorized by law, quote that are necessary to support such use of the armed forces. Now, it's and, not that... And only within the total right. amount of funds that have been appropriated for military construction that have not been obligated. Right. Now, there's plenty of money that's not yet been obligated for this current fiscal year. And there are other, authorities, and there are other authorities to cancel obligated funds. Right. So I think it's... it's. I wouldn't worry too much about that. The, yeah. All the action here is when when Trump does this and asserts and writes into his order explaining that he's doing this and he asserts with all sorts of whatever he thinks he can plausibly say or his aides think he can plausibly say that there's a border emergency that requires the use of the armed forces and he refers back to his recent deployment of forces and whatever the role of the military uh, has been in recent years over and near the border. He'll say the national emergency about border insecurity requires the use of the armed forces and building the wall is necessary to support the military role in securing the border. The billion dollar question, in this case, the $5 billion question, if you will, is when that gets litigated, will the courts uh, reject the traditional national security fact deference and interpretive deference principles that you and I have talked about endlessly and I've written a whole article about? Or will this be another one, uh, perhaps like travel ban or other scenarios like that, where Trump and and tariffs and others, where he's, it's a baloney invocation of national security, but will the courts actually reject it and issue an order saying, nope, this right. this was, it, that would be, we've never had that case. This would be a heck of a constitutional uh, case. I think they probably should. But they um, won't. I'm, well, I don't know. I, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I will predict Ooh. that if that case arises, eventually they will. So isn't there a bigger problem with 2808? So 2808 is about military construction, right? Yep. Um, you, got, you have to own the land that you're constructing ah. on. Okay, so if 
if I'm wrong, and he does, he goes this path, and the courts actually tolerate a baloney invocation right. of national security. That cuts you government property, right? So, so they've they've built a they build few a feet wall. of wall, a couple hundred well, yards not, here, no, no, no. a couple I mean, of I mean, miles there. I mean, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to understate the point. I mean, the the border has a fair amount of government property astride hey, it. Big Bend National Park. That's right. There's a well, there's a fair amount of federal government property astride the border. There's plenty of private property. There's a huge amount, and you know what? There's been so we've had eminent domain to try to take private property here in Texas for border walls, right. border security construction. And those cases have not gone well. These are cases going back to the Bush administration right. that are still being litigated. Um, there's a huge amount of private land yeah. that they're going to have to seize Especially to in do Texas. this. And he's, they're talking about doing that, which I got to say is going to politically wrong foot uh, the administration. Right, because it's, it's anti-libertarian. That's um, exactly right. So then this also led on Friday to this whole thing about, is there really this thing called military eminent domain? So... Um, just because I happen to have written an article about enemy property doctrine in 2007, <laughs> the short answer is yes, but it's not what you think, right? So the Supreme Court in a uh, sort of handful of, I think, fascinating but outlier cases has said the military can seize private property, can destroy private property and not compensate the owner if the seizure slash destruction is absolutely necessary for urgent military purposes. And the two classic examples are at, uh, in the Civil War, the Union Army destroys a railroad bridge of course. Um, right, to prevent the Confederate Army from advancing on St. Louis. The Union Pacific Railroad, or the, sorry, the Pacific Railroad, rebuilds the... Um, and they sent the bill? And they send the bill. Nice. To the, right? And the federal <laughs> like, are you kidding? And the Supreme Court's like, are you kidding? Um, and then in World War II, um, MacArthur orders the destruction of a private oil refinery in the Philippines to prevent it from falling into Japanese yeah. hands. Um, and after the war, the company that owns the oil refinery sues, and the Supreme Court says, are you kidding me? So this is the, uh, this is the eminent domain sort of just compensation equivalent of military objects under LOAC. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. That's but, great. But, but the point is, right? Yeah, but like, none of the none of those scenarios would apply right. to this. Those no. are we are destroying this property to prevent it from falling into the hands of the enemy. Now there are crazy people out there who say, well, we're building the wall to prevent you know southern Texas from falling into the hands of the enemy. No, but this is just no. about just compensation for the taken land, right? It, it doesn't mean that they couldn't exercise regular eminent domain Correct. and pay for it. Right, but that's a lot of money. And now we're back to the problem, which is you don't have the money to do it, right? Which is, the, I don't think that the funds appropriated for military construction are going to get you the fair market value of tens of thousands of square miles of land. Um, I don't know. That's interesting. Maybe it, it's interesting. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I don't actually know the size of that. Although, of course, if it does, the shut. I just want to say this again. If it does, then this is all stupid because there was no need for the shutdown because okay. Trump already had the authority to do it. Well, I had two other things. One, uh, all that money that would be taken and repurposed, yes. that money was that was there for something right. that the U.S. military Ask thought for. it was important right. to have and right. build and do. Um, I'd like to see some attention paid to you. Like, okay, so what's not going to get done? Yes. What's the trade-off? We're going to build the wall in exchange for what? There's a concrete answer to that that affects real communities probably right. all around America. I'd like to know what that would be. Paging Chairman Smith and the House Armed Services Committee. Someone should dig into that. Um, and then let's also note, just for the sake of completeness, that there's an a very parallel authority at 33 U.S. Code 2293 yes. about reprogramming uh, military funds. Basically, uh, it's the same thing, national emergency for military purposes. Uh, SECDEF can reprogram Army Civil Works Program funds for construction projects that are, quote, essential to national defense. And again, 
in a normal context, in a normal uh, period of time with a normal administration, right. it'd be very unlikely for a court to second guess the determination by the executive branch that anything that they say is important for national defense is important enough. Uh, I think all bets are off right now. Well, so just we talked a long time ago about the tariff issue. Um, right, and the invocation of Section oh, yeah. 232 yeah. of the for tariff the steel tariffs, for the steel right. tariffs. Um, while we were away, the Court of International Trade heard oral argument in the uh, I don't remember the the Institute no the the something something Institute of, of Steel um, case. Um, and I read the reports of the argument. The whole thing was, you know, government lawyer. How can you defend this as an exercise of national security? Yeah. So it's possible we are heading for a major national security law opinion from, wait for it, the U.S. Court of International Trade. CIT. I, I, we flagged that case as it was burgeoning a long time ago. I can't wait to read that opinion. We will cover International it. Institute of Steel, something like that? I don't know that. But I will. I can't help but plug my, my old national security fact deference Indeed. article again. Virginia Law Review. If you want to dig into- 2007? Ba- yeah, something like that. No, 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 no. 2009, I think. Ah. Nine or 10. Anyways, uh, it, it is a, a very, very in the weed sort of unpacking of what's the rationale for the traditional national security fact deference courts tend to afford the yep. executive branch. And I basically make the argument that in some cases it makes a lot of sense, but I explain what sort of uh, features you should be looking for before you allocate that deference. And one of it is that there's some reason to believe, some plausible reason to believe the executive branch really tapped into the various forms of expertise right. and so forth. That, so so this is, I mean, listen, this is to me the cardinal sin of Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion last year in the travel ban case, right? Because that the whole, the heart of the travel ban opinion is these are not the kinds of judgments we, the court, second guess, even though there was plenty of stuff in the record, right, to make you wonder if the travel ban really had been the, the result of that process. Yeah. Um, I think... Optically, there are reasons why the Supreme Court, if it wants this issue, would actually love the steel tariffs case, right? Because oh, yeah. it's not, you know, border security. It's not immigration. It is, you know... Right. You, no, it's so attenuated. And it, look, it's so obvious here. But then again, same same with well, this. But right. I think maybe the steel, the steel tariffs one is even worse. Okay, so um, this seems And, like you know, a, wouldn't you love to be the court that matched steel seizures with, with steel, steel tariffs? tariffs. Ooh. Uh, yeah. uh, although there's also steel for the wall. <laughs> I noticed that he he brought in U.S. Steel in particular. Oh Hilarious. Oh okay. Um, <clears throat> by the way, this led to my favorite Twitter comment on Friday. I, I, I had a tweet about. Oh, Youngstown. I think I know which one. The one who's like, "What steel got to do with?" Yeah, this case had nothing. That case had nothing to do with steel. I'm like, so I thought it was ironic. I actually don't <laughs> think it was meant to be ironic. All right, but this seems like a good. Speaking of national oh, wait, security, actually, wait, wasn't that a joke? I think that, I, I thought it was, was but I'm not sure it was. Let's assume the best. It was a joke. Okay. This is the difference between you and me. Um, so speaking of national security deference, <laughs> this actually is a good segue to the D.C. Circuit's decision on Friday. Yeah, so what happened there? So as folks probably, hopefully, kind of know, um, one of the great in-the-name-of-national-security policies that the Trump administration has undertaken, initially it was a categorical ban on military service by tr- individuals who identify themselves as transgender. Um, but as it went through, at least, as the Department of Defense rushed to rationalize the tweet, right. they came up with a more modest policy, which is now known as the Mattis policy, which I'm sure is not a coincidence. That, like DOJ is like, yeah. no, 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 it's the Mattis policy, <laughs> not the Trump ban, Mattis, Mattis policy. policy. Mattis um, policy. Can't so there, there have been three lawsuits challenging the ban, slash Mattis policy, um, all of which resulted in injunctions, nationwide injunctions by the district court against the Mattis policy going into effect. 
on fr the the government had actually uh, taken the unusual step of petitioning for certiorari before right. judgment. Part of this wave of attempts to skip and get right to what they hope will be a friendly majority on the court. Right, and so that basically means you know th as soon as they file their notice of appeal in the court of appeals, they then ask the Supreme Court to take the case without waiting for the court of appeals. Okay, um, and in fact, the government had hurried and hustled to get those cases onto the onto the Supreme Court's conference list for this coming Friday, entirely because this is just about the last moment when the Supreme Court could grant a case and have it argued this term um, and decided by June as opposed to sometime later this year or next year. Um, then on Friday, the D.C. Circuit threw a bit of a wrench in the works because the D.C. Circuit, um, in a very terse, short per curiam opinion, not even an opinion, it's not published, an unpublished order, um, reversed the injunction in the D.C. case. Um, and what the D.C. Circuit said was um, basically a couple things. First, that the district court didn't do nearly enough to distinguish between the Trump ban, which raises obvious constitutional problems, and the more refined Mattis policy, which is not a categorical exclusion of service by transgender individuals, but rather um, is based on uh, denying or excluding from service those who want to transition, right? And who and want have to, the military pay for and it. And have the military pay for it, right? That, oh, that's interesting. actually So that's not the whole policy, but that's a big part yeah, of the I policy. Would, I have not followed this one closely, and I was not aware that that was the nuance. No, no, so there's nuance. This, this is a little bit like the move from original sweeping travel ban one to... Actually, maybe even further, but similar to the transition to the later, more specific and more defensible. And so bans. we're back to the and so we're back to the question of pretext, right? And whether you know if the government is if the government is coming up with a policy that might have been defensible in the abstract, but that is clearly just a post hoc rationalization mm -hmm. for a impulse by the president that's clearly unconstitutional. What is a court to do? Anyway, so the D.C. Circuit says the district court didn't do enough to consider the distinction, um, and that therefore that was reason enough that combined with the deference that courts generally owe to military judgments mm -hmm. and to considered military judgments was enough to justify vacating the injunction and sending the case back. Um, not that the government wins. No, but now it's, but so what is its procedural posture? That the plaintiffs had not yet met their burden for a preliminary injunction. All right, so it goes on into trial, or well, but here, So and... here's the complication. There are still two other nationwide injunctions against the Mattis policy that are in effect. So I think this really complicates the Supreme Court's uh, decisional process for Friday. So before last Friday, the Supreme Court had these three district court opinions with three nationwide injunctions. And the question was, do we jump in now or do we wait for the circuits? Hmm. Right now, you've got one of the circuits having weighed in at least as a preliminary matter. And it gave the government the relief the government wanted. So isn't that an argument to at least let the other two circuits also take a shot and only step in if the circuits end up disagreeing. That seems right to me. Well, it does to me too, but I don't know. And so that's it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, I think last Friday's decision actually might weaken the government's chances. Absolutely. Of yeah, I can see that. Um, but, you know, it only takes four. Um, so I don't know. Um, the other thing to say is the Supreme Court hasn't granted cert before judgment in any case since 2004, and it hasn't granted it in a case where that was the only case, as opposed to like a companion case, since 1988. So it's not something they like to do. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that the rule of four, rule of four applies in cert before judgment, yeah. just like any other cert petition. It does, although I think, think... they might want that to be five. Yeah, although I think there, I think, I, I suspect that there are norms within the court that yeah. don't treat those petitions yeah, like rule that. of four with a little extra mustard rule on of four, But rule of four, where four have to agree not just that cert is warranted, but that the extraordinary vehicle cert before judgment yeah, is warranted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of the Supreme Court's Friday conference, the court will also consider this Friday our pending petition about whether the political question doctrine 
excuse me, bars state law tort suits by service members against private military contractors for injuries sustained in Afghanistan. Um, I still think the most likely scenario is that the court will ask for the views of the Solicitor General, which will kick this case way into next term. Does that at least help you with the crowding of your uh, litigation calendar? Indeed. Um, And then one more litigation development, although we'll save most of this for next week. This is a good one. (laughs) I can't not talk about this. Um, So uh, on, on January 22nd, um, the D.C. Circuit's going to hear two mandamus petitions arising out of the, the al-Nashiri mess, the, the dip, if you will. Um, the, the, I don't want to say the big one. They're both big. But the one that we have spent more time on is al-Nashiri itself, where Nashiri is basically seeking to have Judge Spath disqualified and his rulings vacated because Spath was um, negotiating with the Justice Department for a job he ultimately accepted as an immigration judge all the while. We talked about this a couple episodes ago. Okay, um, the government's position in the litigation has basically been that Nashiri has failed to exhaust, um, right? That, that even if he's entitled to relief, he has to ask the military commission in the first instance. Um, that was hilarious when we started because that was while the military commission proceedings abated. were abated. So there was literally no one to do it before. That's not true anymore, right? I mean, the CMCR has reversed the abatement order, and there is a new judge, Judge Schools, who has been assigned to preside over the case. So there is, in theory, a judge before whom Nashiri could exhaust this claim, assuming that Judge Schools isn't bound by Judge Spath's prior rulings. That's actually not clear. All right. Here's where things get very Gitmo-esque, right? Oh, as only Gitmo can provide. Um, it turns out that the um, defense lawyers caught wind that Judge Schools was also negotiating with the Justice Department for a job as an immigration judge once her <laughs> once she retired from the military. And so the defense team sought discovery from the government about Judge School's one planned retirement date, um, and two, what if any contact she had had with the Justice Department, and three, whether she had accepted a position as an immigration judge. And the government writes back, um, oh, we actually had no idea this was happening. Um, but here's what we found out. Yes, she's retiring soon, and she's accepted a job as an immigration judge, and she's been talking to DOJ about it for X number of months, right? So that's you the cannot make you this can't make this up. up. Wait, then the be- so that's the that's what it was, that's what happened in the trial court, right? That all happened in the trial court. The government turned around and on I think Friday or over the weekend filed um, the equivalent of a twenty-eight J letter, basically a, a a letter with the DC Circuit that basically says, "Hey, DC Circuit, we just wanted to let you know." That we have, in fact, determined that Judge Schools is planning to retire shortly, that she has accepted a job as an immigration judge, um, and that she was negotiating with DOJ for one, you know, for a fair amount of time while this was all going on. The government says, that's not a reason to give Nashiri relief, though. Rather, right, if this case goes back to the trial court, the government would not object if Nashiri sought reassignment of the case to a different military judge. I mean, she's retiring anyways. Actually, I'm not even sure they say. I don't I actually. I don't even think they say we wouldn't object. I think. They, I think they just say Nashiri she may just, seek reassignment. Let's try another one. So here's my are reaction. there any that aren't negotiating for immigration judge jobs? There is that problem, but here's my larger problem. The D.C. Circuit is sitting there trying to figure out whether they should disqualify Judge Spath. The government's position is not. You know, substantive. Yeah. The government's position is not, no, he did nothing wrong. The government's position is, well, you should make Nashiri raise this argument first in the trial court. And then it turns out, oh, wait, the tri- the new trial judge is equally flawed? At that point, you'd think the government might say, okay, fine, D.C. Circuit, we give up. 
decide this, right? Like, yeah, you know, let's fight, let's fight this on the merits. We think it's okay. Right. But no, the government comes back and says, all right, so the new judge is also screwed up. Tell you, you know, that's fine because nothing would stop Nashiri from seeking reassignment to a third judge, losing before the third judge, and then appealing that back to the DC circuit. No, this is crazy. You've got to be kidding me. I, I am with you. I, this is crazy. There's so nothing to be said in favor of this. Um, I believe that the panel that is here in these cases on J- January 22nd is judges uh, Tatel, um, Rogers, and Griffith. Maybe Rogers, Tatel, and Griffith. I don't want to get the seniority yeah, off. Yeah. Um, that's not a good panel for the government. The, this is not going to go I well. I think the transcript is going to be fun reading. I mean, wait, my, do they do audio? I can't remember. They do. They do. So okay, so the audio is going to be, you know, we'll have a listening party. I was, was going to say, we've never actually like spliced audio into our podcast. I have this a feeling might we actually, might get some worthy moments. I might have to like, I mean, because Judge Tatel, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Judge Tatel. Um, and it's not just because we agree on a lot of things, it's because I think he is an incredibly fair-minded, thorough, um, capable judge. Um, judge Tatel does not suffer fools, and he does not suffer bullshit. And I, he's just, I, I, I mean, I, I hope someone, like, I hope he wears a seatbelt. Um, what's, what's, so is the maximum, I'm trying to think of where it goes. Let's assume the panel, it just had it and they yeah. want to, they want to intervene with the maximal impact. Start over. They, they, they vacate all of SPAS rulings. It's like an NCAA deal. Yes. Like all your victories are eliminated. The title's rule. gone. They vacate SPAS rulings. They vacate the CMCR rulings. They vacate anything schools has done. And they said, dear government, start over before a new judge. Can you imagine? Meanwhile, so just meanwhile, I, 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 because I can't resist, Judge Griffith, the third member of the panel, and probably the one most likely to be sympathetic to the government, let's not forget, is the author of the panel opinion in Al-Nashiri 2, where the court held, there's no need for us to step in and resolve the jurisdictional question that might make this whole thing pointless because we can trust the military commissions to expediently handle these proceedings. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if there's any walk back of that. At that point, if they get that maximal remedy, is there any reason why, besides the politics and all yeah. that, that, any substantive reason why you wouldn't be able to just switch it over to a civilian federal court criminal prosecution in terms of like, I mean, hey, but the, we've already kind of I mean, progressed. The, I mean, the transfer bar, the statutory transfer bar. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in terms of like the progress of the case and no. the issues to be decided, you'd be, you be at square one either way, If you right? wipe everything out, I mean, and listen, I mean, I if I'm the D.C. Circuit, like, you know, don't, don't you, th- isn't there enough taint now, right, s- s- attached to all of the proceedings before Judge Spath and Judge Schools that you're like, and, and isn't it telling that the government is digging in not on there not being a problem, but on Nashiri's failure to exhaust. I suspect at oral argument, the government attorney will say, we're not giving an inch on the merits. Sorry if it seemed that way. Oh, that we, we didn't. So I think they'll they'll resist that. Um, but also as ha- for like the, the overall taint, is, is the suggestion you're making that somehow the prosecution actually li- can no longer move forward? Period. No, 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 no. But just that isn't it in everyone's interest to start over. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. isn't like like if you really want a, a, a you want a reliable a conviction. reliable conviction that's going to survive an appeal, right? Isn't it in everyone's interest now to wipe the slate clean and start over? Um, now, of course, what that sort of all gets back to is um, why you know what I find most galling about the government's most recent submission is even while Nashiri is raising substantial challenges to Spath. No one on the prosecution team thought to make sure the same problem wouldn't be true of the current 
military judge. No one bothered to Would find out. Would that be more the convenient authority's Fine. responsibility? No one. Which gets to the removal right. of the convenient no authority. No one in a position of authority thought to check if the judge. Who let's not repeat this. Right. Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, just. So, well, anyway. So, we'll turn our attention for something that does not work to something that does seem to work well the regular federal civilian criminal court. Oh, wait, can I say one quick thing? Before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I please. should also note, though, while all this is going on, in an airstrike, we apparently killed Al Badawi. Yes. So uh, that was of, actually CENTCOM right. put out a confirmation. So speaking of USS Cole-related um, um, suspects, right? Um, th- meanwhile, right, there's that. There is that. It's a, it's a striking contrast. Um, on the DOJ National Security Division front, there's been a whole series of things over the past couple of weeks that are worth uh, mentioning. I want to highlight uh, one case in particular, the Hal Martin case. Hal Martin is the, NS- the former NSA contractor who is – uh, been charged with uh, uh, illegal retention of national defense information. Um, suffice to say that the the working theory, at least as, as has been publicly reported by many observers, is that Martin either uh, purposely, maybe accidentally, but one way or the other, he's the source from which Shadow Brokers was getting the NSA hacking tools that they then dumped publicly. Um, and in front of uh, the district judge in Maryland, Richard Bennett, Martin had moved to suppress the uh, fruits of the searches of both his home, uh, his, uh, his, the content of his Twitter account, uh, the private content of his Twitter account, and then also a, uh, a search that revealed his cell site location information to locate his movements. There was not a search warrant-based uh, uh, production, but rather a D- so-called de-order under the Stored Communications Act. So he argued that all those uh, warrants and orders were unjustified. Uh, but he also tried to suppress his statements to the FBI at the moment they executed the warrant and first uh, first had him and, and started speaking with him. And the court uh, rejected the suppression motion as to the various warrants in the de-order, but agreed and granted the motion as to his statements. And, and the bottom line is this. Um, you can tell from the filing and the, and the judge's uh, opinion that when they went to get the warrants initially, when FBI did, um, they already had access to some private Twitter communications. I assume they were they were direct messages. Um, and you get this hint that Martin was in contact with someone else whom the government was monitoring, perhaps a foreign agent, who knows, maybe, maybe a Russian. Um, and that they'd had communications about meeting up, that Martin had said something about the shelf life of something being only a matter of, of weeks, and how immediate, um, within hours after that message was transmitted, shadow brokers dumped all these NSA hacking tools on the public market. Um, that there was also uh, confirmation that Martin had been, in, in fact, in a position to have access to all these tools. So they obviously have him pretty dead to rights already, it looks like. But that was the basis for searching his home and for getting the rest of his Twitter account. And the court didn't have any trouble finding there was probable cause there. Um, the cell site location information order had not been a search warrant backed by a Fourth Amendment probable cause, but rather a de-order reasonable suspicion. Um, under Carpenter, that's no longer enough. And so Martin was hoping to get the retroactive impact of that. And the court basically said, following precedent, you know, it's already, we've already decided in this circuit that, that this does not apply retroactively to suppress information. Um, and then lastly, there was his statements to the investigators who arrived to execute the warrant. Here's the key fact. When he, when he showed up at the house, they cuffed him and put him on the ground on his stomach with his arms behind his back and secured him. And though they then removed the cuffs and all went inside, and he was repeatedly told, you're not under arrest, 
the circumstances were such that the court concluded he was constructively not free to leave. Um, his his partner, his sort of, uh, I guess his girlfriend, uh, she was not allowed in to see him. And the court said, you know, this was effectively an arrest. And so they, they did suppress the statements he made. No, no indication here whether that's very critical or not. It doesn't seem it's terribly critical to the case, which might help explain why the court was willing to err on the side of suppression. So uh, the Hal Martin case continues to turn forward. Really quickly, some notes on some Chinese uh, commercial espionage cases. On the 20th of December, there was news of, of charges against two agents of the Ministry of State Security for engaging in commercial espionage. They're not in custody, aren't likely to be in custody. But another guy the next day, who was a Chinese national living in the United States these past 12 years, has been arrested. Uh, so he's in custody, and he had been stealing trade secrets from a U.S. energy company. Um, part of what's interesting there is just the fact that that's a National Security Division case. Uh, you know, it's presumably the case that they are eventually or behind closed doors linking him to the Ministry of State Security. Or if not, they're simply deciding there's been a decision to shift these IP theft cases when they involve China, even when the ministry or the PLA are not involved, just to categorically uh, bring them within the reach of the National Security Division's larger, very high-profile effort to press China on commercial espionage. Now, uh, turning to the Islamic State cases, you've got a 40-year sentence in a, a very scary case. It's a uh, this is the El Banasawi case where it's a 20-year-old Canadian guy who, along with some others, were planning to try to make their way to New York City, bomb Times Square, and do other things. 40 Poor years. Times Square. I know, What right? did Times Square ever do? I mean, I live, like, my parents live eight blocks from Times Square. What did Times Square ever do to anybody? It became an icon. Yeah. It became an icon. Yeah. Um, if it hadn't been cleaned up and sort of, you know, and I've... Damn you, Giuliani. Uh, I know, right? Hey, I was there a lot this past weekend, as we're going to talk about in a moment. It, it really is quite a sight. You feel like you're uh, in, uh, my, as, as my kid felt, uh, you feel like you're in a very exciting and dramatic place. And so, therefore, it becomes attractive for terrorists who want mm. iconography for their Don't attacks. ask my parents how they feel about the cleanup of Times Square, but that's a 70s. Oh, they preferred it the 70s way? No, but they just, <laughs> they, 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 they have concerns about the over-commercialization and, like, n you know, naked tourist you know, appeal that... <laughs> Hopefully it's not actually naked tourists. Well, yeah, that, oh, that, that was, that was the 70s. Time, from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then lastly, the Al Gamal case, a 46-year-old man from Arizona. He got a more conventional 12-year sentence for material support to the Islamic State. He had helped another guy go abroad to join the Islamic State and had tried to do so himself. And that, my friend, is the end of the serious stuff Let's get mean. Wait, I got one more. Oh, one you more. have more serious stuff? I forgot in our Supreme Court update to note the remarkably strange fate of the mystery Supreme Court appeal in the Mueller grand jury subpoena. All right, thing. this is a, a foreign corporation so seeking quickly, sovereign right. so immunity? A foreign government-owned corporation. Okay. Um, so, so let me go. I'm going to say apparently for things that we're pretty sure of, and I'll just state the things that we're sure of. Okay. So apparently um, the grand jury that is that Mueller convened as part of his investigation issued a subpoena to a foreign government-owned corporation. It's like a Russian-owned bank, perhaps. Yeah, or a, you know... A, a Turkish... Or a Chinese tech firm. Yeah, could be any number of things. Could be any number of things. Um, for, you know, presumably some kind of business records, right, right related... So discovery. ...of relevance to the Mueller investigation. Um, the foreign-owned company, uh, the foreign government-owned company, moved to quash the subpoena, apparently on the ground that... The subpoena was inconsistent with the language of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, that this is a government-owned corporation, so it's entitled to the special protections of the FSIA, um, lost in the district court and was held in contempt. Um, 
the, uh, was fined, and apparently the fine was accumulating every day. Um, I have speculated publicly that it might be one of those fines that doubles every day, and that that might be why the Supreme Court, you know, why it's gotten so much attention. Yeah. Because if you do the math, I mean, a, a hundred dollar yeah. fine. If, if you fine a company a hundred dollars for contempt, it, it but it big. doubles every day, you're in, you're. I think it's yeah. like fifty billion by the end of a month. Um, so okay, the D.C. Circuit heard a very expedited appeal um, under incredible secrecy. Um, and issued a, so far as we can tell, fairly terse ruling um, affirming the district court in contempt citation and holding that no, the company was not protected by the FSIA from having to comply with the subpoena. The company then um, filed an application for a stay with Chief Justice Roberts in his capacity as circuit justice for the D.C. Circuit. Um, Roberts issued what I think is generally known as an administrative stay, which is basically like, I will grant your stay while we consider the stay. Right, like yeah. you know, while yeah. we don't Supreme read anything court, into this, while just... we the court take time to figure out what to do, you know, I understand this contempt fines accumulating. So at least while we're considering your stay application, I'll grant you a temporary pause. Now, I think it's more. I mean, had the application been frivolous, Roberts wouldn't have done that. So right. I think we can read into that that there is more than nothing to the legal question. And Shaman Keitner has written a very long, very good um, series of posts for Just Security, and I think one for Lawfare maybe um, about the topic. Um, also, it was the Sunday before Christmas. And so I think the chief was also mindful of not having all these lawyers working on Christmas. Yep. Um, what's odd is um, the briefing that the chief justice ordered has been complete now for six days. Um, and there's been no – and, and presumably the normal procedure in this context would be for the chief to refer the matter to the full court and for the court to vote up or down on whether to issue a stay. Um, and it would take five votes to grant a stay. I'm really surprised – that we've gotten not just to Friday, which was when the Supreme Court's next scheduled conference was, but to this morning when we had an order list from the Supreme Court, and there's still been nothing. So increasingly, it seems like maybe there's something interesting to be argued over within the court. Maybe, or that someone is writing separately to say, I think the substantive question presented in this case is worth our time, but that this is not the case in which to resolve it. Because here's the problem. So far as we know, the Supreme Court in its history has never had a merits case, that is a case that in which it heard argument and received full plenary briefing under seal, um, right, where the argument was in secret, where the briefing was in secret. I mean, unless we just don't know because they were so effective, but so, the docket would show an entry, right? I mean, the Supreme so, you know, there have been fully sealed cert petitions yeah. before. So we know what it looks like for the record system to reflect sealed activity. Exactly. So unless the exit, and, and we also know in this con, there already is in this case, right, an example of the docket publicly reflecting that this thing exists, even though it's all under seal. Yeah. Um, so unless there's a separate category of things where they don't even publicly acknowledge that there's a sealed filing, which I've heard of in the lower courts, but I've never heard of in the Supreme Court. Um, so the justices may actually want the merits question presented here that, by the way, I suspect has nothing to do with Mueller. No, no, it's just and a, it's everything just to do with classic, the FSIA. Yeah, it's just a right. Um, but because it's Mueller and because of the secrecy, they may just want to be able to say, "Listen, without regard to this, you know, we, yeah. we, we good issue. We're not going to touch this one." Right. Yeah. So all this is to say, but I'm surprised that that hasn't already happened. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, we'll it's watch very, that. This it's week. very fetch. Stop trying to make fetch happen, Steve. It's not so, going to happen. I was trying to think of so before I ask you to sort of reflect on the on the musical. I, I was trying to remember. I was trying to think of what my favorite favorite lines are. It's true, most of them are too dirty for this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I will go with. I mean, Regina George does say at one point, "Whatever, I'm getting cheese fries." And I feel like that's a pretty good way of going. That's through life. that's a good that's a good motto to have. Yes. 
Um, you know, I don't have any deep reflections. I, I kind of want to react a little bit more to you because I think you've, you've thought about them. You've had more time to think about the movie. I will say... I'm sorry that people are so jealous of me, but I can't help it that I'm popular. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the musical was really good. Good. I thought that uh, the standout performers, the ones who really stood out to me, Taylor Louderman uh, played Regina George. Uh, which is to say she played Mean Sharpay, because basically that's what that character <laughs> struck me as. And uh, she's got a Tony nomination for that role, and I could see why. Um, her voice is incredible. And some of the Regina George songs, especially whichever one it is, whichever number when she uh, finally realizes what's going on mm. and she's setting out on her path to revenge, is it's a really impressive performance. She was great. Um, I thought that uh, Kevin Napoor, who plays Cheech Menhar, stole oh, the, uh, math, the math lead. Yeah, yeah, I, he stole his scenes, I and mean, that 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 character is made to do that. Um, his Broadway debut, which makes that really cool. So those two stood out. Um, in general, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, it's like I have ESPN or something. That's a great line. All right. So what what do you think about it in general? I mean, is it? I actually, so I, I mean, listen, I, I, there's, there's a, you know, I, there, I, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for teeny bopper movies, um, especially those that were, you know, made back when I was still roughly school. Like I was, I think I was in law school when Mean Girls came out. Uh, maybe I had just graduated. Um, I, you know, I like Mean Girls partly because I think it sends the right, like as, 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 as fathers of daughters. Yes. Um, I think it sends the right message. Right about you know the the sort of bullying and you know group um, sort of politics and factionalizing. Yeah, it doesn't. Tim Meadows, by the way, as the principal is in, and 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 Tina Fey as the as yeah the no teacher, that's inspired. That's casting. pretty great. And and the ones who I forget the names of the actor and actress that uh, played them in the show, but yeah. they were quite good. Um, I agree with that. Obviously, uh, as any parent would look at that and say, look, it's basically about um, and math is cool. It, it's an anti. Yeah, it's you know. Math is cool, but also bullying's bad, and, and social bullying is is pernicious. Um, Body shaming. The uh, the degree to which it's sexed up is is I recognize like part of the the charm of the movie. It's sort of the price of admission to get the attention of the audience. You really want to take on the larger anti bullying message, um, and there are some notes of sort of you know you know there's a little bit of a gesture here and there in the lyrics and some of the lines about. Uh, Critiquing the this the sexualized culture, but not nearly as much as as I think the costuming and all the rest sort of still tends to valorize yeah, it. And so, enough. actually, as a father of daughters, but just you know, just as a parent, I just was like, ah, that's one element. I wish they'd I wish they'd saved some of the snark and some of the social criticism for that too. The Fair objectification. Enough. Enough. Was I mean, I think that's pretty, right. Pretty heavy still. It's, I mean, it's it's a tough line to draw, right? Because you want you want to get people interested. If you if you if you're too if you moralize and do nothing but moralizing, nobody's watching this. Right. Um, so that's why I want to sort of go out with um, so Gretchen Gretchen's speech in class when she realizes that like Regina is not her friend. Oh yeah, right. Why should Caesar just get to stomp around like a giant while the rest of us try not to get smushed under his big feet? Brutus is just as cute as Caesar, right? <laughs> Brutus is just as smart as Caesar. People totally <laughs> like Brutus just as much as they like Caesar. And when did it become okay for one person to be the boss of everybody because that's not what Rome is about? We should totally just stab Caesar. <laughs> nice. Oh, that reminds me of something. Um, I thought really stabbing Caesar. No, no, me. just just drawing me back to the to the show. Um, there's there's some lines. I, there's a line or two in Meet the Plastics that uh, struck me as very similar to the lines in the so- Sound of Music song uh, "16 Going on 17." Uh-huh. Like you need someone 
I think it's when when Katie meets the plastics, mm. uh, and they say something like, "You need someone to show you the ropes." And on the uh, in the car the other day with my kids, we'd been listening to, or they were watching. I was listening to Sound of Music and hearing that very similar. Um, and that got me to the, this is the segue. So Sound of Music, which I've seen with my kids a million times over the past yeah. fifteen years, um, you know, it's got a different resonance today. When when Georg is holding forth about you know value, you know Austrian values, we've got to have values. I hope people don't lose sight of our values. And and as people who ought to know better from his community are kind of going along with things, I'm not trying to make a Trump's a Nazi point. I'm trying to make a point about staying true to your values and not because some popular political movement has gone a certain direction. Uh, you even, should just if, jump on the bandwagon too. Even if it costs you your house and your family, and not your not your family, but even if it costs you your house, your and house your and your position. professional station. And yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, it's just it struck me as amazing that something that is as popcorn fair as yeah. sound of music yeah. suddenly even that has strong political oh, resonance. Oh no, no. Today listen, too. I, I mean, I think. Well, I, so it, when we talk about like the truly great American movies slash musicals, I mean, right, Casablanca, Sound of Music. I mean, like you know, part of what makes them so transcendent to me is that there actually is powerful, timely political messages, right, even within the yeah. sort of the the sugar. And also, I felt bad for the Baroness. Yeah, I mean, she seemed she seemed pretty no, she okay. Gets a raw deal, right? Now you mentioned Lindsay Lohan earlier. In the Lindsay Lohan remake of Parent Trap, uh-huh. um, you've got this sort of same deal where like there's this like the the attractive woman who wants to marry right. the male lead, yeah. and then the the kids are all against it. Yes. Now that didn't work out very well at all. That was that was a mean sort of would be spouse. The Baroness, she nothing just, wrong with nothing her. Nothing wrong at all. with her. She's just not she's just not Julie Andrews. Somebody um, should write a sort of a one of those novels that's built <laughs> off the popular familiar novel about the story of the Baroness. Like what yeah. happened to her next when the war came? It probably doesn't end after the Anschluss. It probably doesn't end well. No, it probably does not. So I was um, because we are already at our longest episode ever. I just want I just want yes. to add one one last point just to sort of um, uh, uh, tease you a little. Um, so one of the things that one of the sort of overlaps. Um, of course, right, the, the powerful moment at the end in the arts festival when they escape is when um, Christopher Plummer, right, as Georg, sings Edelweiss. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Edelweiss is the opening credits to Man in the High Castle. Get out of here. Nice. And it's like, and it's totally the opposite meaning, right? In in um, in The Sound of Music, it's Edelweiss, like Austrian national pride right. and heritage distinct from German. Don't get subsumed by fascism. Right. And in Man in the High Castle, it's, yeah, we're all, you know, um, we're all this beautiful, perfect, gleaming country of white supremacy and Aryanness. Oh, I, you know, I hate to I hate to think that they used it that way because that song I actually like it much better with the sound of music. Meaning. Well, go watch go watch Man in the High Castle. I will. I know. Uh, let me just say to you, I was surprised to find Heather told me as we were driving along, she looked up something. She said, "You know, Edelweiss." She said it was created for the for sound of music. It wasn't actually some really. She said, at least according to what she no, saw no, online, I that. it wasn't actually some, like some like, very familiar. Austrian anthem. folk song. Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe it is. Maybe not. I, I'm sure our listeners know. Let's no, let them go. No, but it's funny how it's funny how like sometimes things that are created for those purposes actually become appropriate. Oh, absolutely. So, all right. Um, that was a pretty busy episode. Yeah. That think, was fun. We're but, back, baby. We're back. Just like the Texas Longhorns Sugar Bowl champions. We're back. I called that, by the way. You did. You did. I didn't. I didn't correctly call either of the college football playoff games. No, you did not. No. I think I did. Uh, I think you probably did. Uh, which is not to say that I'm excited about clubs in Alabama part no, four. But, no. um, yeah, I got nothing. Um, yeah. Let's go. I don't know. I, I can't refer to the Eagles or the Cowboys. Uh, America's team, Cowboys. 
<laughs> All right. He's at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. We will be back next Monday with a special surprise military commission related guest. Um, till then, tell your friends about us. If you made it this far, I'm really impressed. Um, we promised our wives that we would talk about how amazing they were on this podcast. Y'all are the best. But we also know that you're not listening. Um, so till next week, stay safe out there. Adios.